What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. So I was working for many years in camera departments and TV shows and movies. So I worked with Steadicam operators, and I saw them do amazing work, you know, where they're running backwards, running full speeds, you know, running around actors. And it just looked awesome. So I got something called a glide cam, which is a much cheaper version of a Steadicam, and started training. And the training, did it pay off, Josh? It did. That's Bing Liu, director of one of this year's standout documentaries, Minding the Gap, which is about a trio of skateboarders in Rockford, Illinois, including Liu himself, who use their hobby to deal with the trauma they suffered as kids. This week on the show, my conversation with Liu and two of his collaborators about his extraordinary debut film. We'll also talk about the films we've shortlisted for the 2018 Film Spot and Golden Brick Award, which we give to our favorite underseen movie of the year. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. It's our tradition here on the show to devote an episode this time of year, just around Thanksgiving, to the movies that have qualified for our Golden Brick Award. That's the award we give every year to our favorite overlooked or underseen movie from a new or emerging director. Later in the show, we'll run through the titles that we've shortlisted this year, and we'll revisit our review of Chloe Zhao's The Writer, one of our Golden Brick frontrunners. But first, Adam's interview with three of the creatives behind another Golden Brick nominee, Minding the Gap, including director Bing Liu. Minding the Gap is a documentary set in Rockford, Illinois, where Liu grew up. If you've heard of the film, you probably know it as one of 2018's many skateboard movies. In the documentary, three friends in their early 20s, Zach, Kier, and Bing himself, all skateboarders, confront the challenges of impending adulthood. The movie does have some incredible skateboard footage, and Lou talks about how he captured some of that. But as I bring up in our conversation, if that's all you know about the film before going in, you'll likely be surprised by the way the movie's true subject emerges, that subject being the cycle of violence and abuse that families and sometimes entire communities get caught up in. Zach, Kieran, being all grew up in abusive households, and each of them has dealt with it in a unique way. In one of the film's memorable scenes, which gets brought up in the interview, Bing has an emotional confrontation with his mother about the abuse they both endured. I had the opportunity to talk with Bing along with the film's editor, Josh Altman, and one of the film's producers, Diane Kwan, after the premiere screening of Minding the Gap here in Chicago at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And I started the conversation by asking Bing how he was feeling about the film's reception. It's his first film, 
the response has been overwhelmingly positive. We're not alone, certainly, Josh, in considering it one of the best movies of the year. And I figured it had to be a little bit surreal for him, having just made his first movie. He's worked on some other projects, but this is his first film. Surely he doesn't feel like he's reached the pinnacle of his filmmaking career, and yet he is hearing all of this praise. I wondered how he was dealing with it all. I think I just dissociate, you know. I, uh, I go skate, I wake up, but I'm a workaholic, so I just work on other things. So, yeah, it's very much like walking in and out of a dream. Mm-hmm. Is there anything in particular, anything specific in the responses, whether it's audiences or critics, that you find the most rewarding, that you're glad people are responding to? Um, I mean, it's such a mix of everything that I hoped for. People that never really knew anything about this issue are really, you know, seeing it in a different light and really understanding, you know, how complex the cycle of violence is. Um, people are, are saying like, oh, I'm never going to look at skateboarders the same again. It's just, and people who have experienced these things are just reaching out saying, you know, you've articulated something that's really hard to articulate. I want to throw that question at you guys as well. Uh, as an editor, as a producer, uh, Joshua, starting with you, um, I'm sure you've seen, you, you've read some things about the film. You've heard, uh, I know the film has been screened at, at Sundance and other festivals. Um, what's rewarding for you and the responses it's gotten? Um, yeah, I think, you know, we were just talking about this outside. I, I, I've edited a lot of films. I've never had a film that has had um, this much positive press. And in a way where they're not just saying, oh, we like it. They're really digging into it and like pulling out all the layers from it. And I think that's just really rewarding to know that that people are, are, are looking at it that deep. Mm-hmm. It's been great, like getting posts or emails, you know, being they'll look up our emails on the website and, and email us. And it's young people, uh, fathers, men and women writing and saying how much the film touched them and Often they'll say, I'm talking to my dad for the first time, hmm. you know, or I'm sitting with my brother talking to my dad, you know. So it's it's what we had hoped as being said. And so to, to actually see it happen is really rewarding. Are those those types of responses specifically being something you actually anticipated at all when you were making this film? That, that people would be um, finding it cathartic in some way or actually that it was helping to heal rifts in their families? I could only have hoped. I mean, I feel like I'm. A, I try to stay grounded and just expect the worst, and you know, expect everyone to hate it, <laughs> and for it not to connect at all to anybody, to anybody's experience. But no, it's uh, it's been really nice. Um, I think what's nice is that it's sort of you know, there's this element of it tricking you. You know, you think it's one thing, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is what I'm gonna. This is what we're exploring. And so you know, there's cases where you know fathers and their children are sitting together. You know, they don't realize what's going on, and then. You know, sometimes we've we've gotten some emails where it's like, well, my father had to get up in the middle of the screening and go watch it by himself because, you know, it hits so close to home. And, you know, I mean, we're talking about relationships where the father has been abusive. And they've talked about it for the first time. So. so take us back to the beginning on that, because you mentioned the trick there. And I think when I saw it, uh, maybe I'd read a two-sentence plot synopsis, and I thought, okay, it's going to be about skateboarders. Great. I'm on board with that. And they're grappling with adulthood. And um, I had maybe a sense of what themes could be extrapolated from that. But it really does go in some directions that maybe you don't anticipate if that's all you know. So how did this begin for you, and how different is the finished product from what it originally started as? So there's a lot of reverse engineering. Most of the, most of like the trickery happens in the first act. Um, when I first started the project, I was in my mid-20s. I didn't know Kier. Um, I barely knew Zach. I went around the country, and I was interviewing skateboarders about trauma and heartbreak and childhood um, and their relationships with their fathers. 
Um, and then a year in, I, went, I returned to Rockford, and, you know, Kier was somebody that I was going to explore because I noticed this African-American skateboarder and this group of white friends. Um, and our first conversation together was really telling because he had never talked about it before, and he didn't dismiss it like many of the other people that I talked to about abuse. I mean, Zach, for one, you know, he's an example of that. Yeah, of course, my dad beat me. Yeah, the cops were called, but, you know, that was when I was really young. For Kier, it hadn't quite hardened like that yet. You know, he was processing it. And in that, I saw a younger version of myself, and I saw someone worth following. And for Zach, it was like no one else was about to become a dad, and no one else was, you know, not as prepared like he was to become a dad. So, so Josh, where did this start for you? How did you meet Bing? How did you get on board with the project? Um, Bing often says he tricked me. Uh, <laughs> A lot of tricks going on. A lot on. of tricks. He tricked me to come on board. Uh, he came out to California. He was shooting something else that now we're actually working on together. And um, at the time, he just asked me to watch his film and give him notes. And I gave him notes. And then he was like, hey, would you like to come on and edit this with me? And uh, I happened to have like a little bit of time in between something. And we worked it out. Um, but yeah, I think for us, you know, a big part of the storytelling, like Bing was saying, was was really trying to figure out how to have it be this just evolving film where you're constantly on, on your toes and not quite sure what where where it's going. So is that something that that drew you as an editor into that kind of the the structure of it and how the experience an audience would have kind of with those reveals, I guess? I wouldn't say that drew me into it because it wasn't, we didn't have that. We came up with that as we started processing and, and figuring out how to best tell the story. I think what drew me into it was just the realness and the rawness of, of, of the bits that I had seen and the emotion of that Bing was putting himself into it and trying to share these things and talk about these things that I hadn't seen talked about before. Diane, how did you get involved? So, um, I think uh, Betsy talked about Kurt Templin at the beginning of the film, but it, it's a great documentary company here in Chicago, and um, I was already working on a few films there at Kurt Templin, and they have this lab where people can bring in, filmmakers can bring in a rough cut of their um, film. Bing was, was part of the, the Diverse Voices program, and he was showing the, his film, and I think it was about two and a half years ago. And I was really impressed with the the idea of the film because you just don't usually see films about men and young men talking about their feelings. And I just love the film. But also I was impressed with Bing. Um, he's just so articulate and so um, honest. And uh, we end up talking, having coffee, and then working together. And here we are. And here we are, yeah. So I do want to talk about the skate boarding footage, of course, because it's such a key part of the movie, including that that great um, opening sequence. I, I just wonder if you can tell us kind of how you went about um, capturing the thrill of that, that it clearly is for you and and uh, Zach and, and for Kier in terms of it, it being this kind of uh, expression uh, for them um, of the frustrations and a release and a relief for them in some way. So how did you approach that visually? Yeah, so I was working on yeah, I was working for many years in camera departments and TV shows and movies. So I worked with Steadicam operators and I saw them do amazing work, you know, where they're running backwards, running full speeds, you know, running around actors and it just looked awesome. So I got something called a glide cam, which is a much cheaper version of a Steadicam and started training. Um and the footage was so amazing because it's at eye level, you know, so it's not glorifying the footwork. It's more about the feeling emotionally of what it feels like to glide over concrete and have the world just sort of rush by you. It took me a solid year to get to the point where I was intuitive with it. 
Um, but I was able to run. I was able to run upstairs through gravel around them. There were times where I knew they were going to skate for a quarter mile, you know, and I was like, I'm not going to. Um, <laughs> so, you know, for those times, I'd grab my filmer board, which is a skateboard with soft wheels, so it doesn't make sound. But it was actually scarier to film on a skateboard because you're, you know, going over railroad tracks. It's like, I'd rather run over those. Yeah. So, how, how much of it did you choreograph, I suppose? Did you have in your mind how it might go, how it might look, what you wanted to get, and how much of it was kind of just following them and, and seeing what you got from it? Um, I mean, most of the time, you know, the skateboarder filmer relationship is very much like they're going to try something. It's not typically first try, so you get a few goes at it. So that's sort of, you know, the process. But for those times where they're skating through the city, you know, it's like, hey, are, you know, are you guys going to like just just skate across the bridge like yeah okay i'm just gonna follow you so that you know that opening shot was uh actually that was take two because the first time i forgot to turn on my mic (laughs) so uh i was like okay can you guys can we can we go back over there and they're like sure let's do it so josh as an editor then when you're looking at all that footage and you're working with being on on shaping it what did did you apply any sort of philosophy to it after looking at all the footage or was it uh, kind of for you too just going on instinct and trying to make sure that you were expressing whatever they were trying to express yeah i mean a lot of it was instinct but it was also um you know bing is uh he's been cutting skate films forever so a lot of it was sort of leaning in on him on like you know those sort of moments and like talking through certain i mean for for example the top being really wanted to let the shot just play straight through initially because it was incredible that he had captured it and had been on his board for like this long straight thing um uh, but eventually we had to shorten it and so it was like well let's cut it up and see how it works um yeah and the other thing is just you know when you watch him run on the there's one shot i don't know if you guys remember this in the film where it's sort of in this montage where we're talking about um, the guys when they were younger. And this is one shot where Bing runs across the frame with this thing where he's holding the glide cam. He was doing that like all the time with them and just sweating profusely. The guys are like, we would feel bad, you know what I mean, when we would go and skate because he would be running around the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like you want to just use as much of this as possible. <laughs> I want to ask all of you this, but I'll start with you, Diane. As you've seen this film many times now, um, what – parts of it what part in particular is there a moment that still sort of really gets you that you find the most uh, revealing or the most powerful we were just talking about this and now i'm blanking um i don't know why this part always gets me but in the opening scene you hear the little boys um banging on a drum i don't know why that scene always just touches me that here is in rockford this is what you do for entertainment. You're, you find a bucket, you turn it over, and you use it as a drum. So that part, and also when Kira and Zach, you see them turn their heads and just this big smile, I think it just captures so much um, their relationship. And after getting to know them, that's how I yeah. just want to think of them. I guess the version of that question for you guys is um, – is the, what's the moment that no matter what cuts you had to make, you were like, I'm not losing this. <laughs> I mean, at one point we talked about losing me, right? We did. Yeah. Um, that was around when we first met. It was mm-hmm. like, it was just hard to see how it was going to fit. You mean completely yeah. from the film? <laughs> yeah. Basically. So I had being yeah. initially, you know, in trying to figure it out, we, we, he pulled all three storylines apart and cut them, you know, 
just separate. So it was like, here's Zach's thing, and here's Kier's, and here's mine. And I watched his, and I was like, man, yours is just really... Because he had a lot of voiceover and things. I don't know. There are other things going on. It's hard to explain. But it was definitely... Well, originally, Bing wasn't in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then he was, and yeah. So, Bing, how did you ultimately come to terms, I guess, with putting yourself in the movie? Um, I mean, I didn't really want, even want to try until... I think it was after, well, one, it was after Nina revealed to me the abuse, you know, it gave me more of a reason to do that. But two, it just, it was like, why not just try it? But I'm not going to do it, you know, by walking out in front of the camera and giving like this, you know, Mm -hmm. PBS style thing, Um, (laughs) even though it's PBS film, but uh, (laughs) 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 the old PBS stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, it was just more about like, well, how do I become a character without doing it in a traditional way? Um, I mean, the, the interviews with my brother and mom and the skate shop owner just made a lot of sense. Um, but it was like, how do I set myself up? I think that was actually the trick. It was like how, and like, that's where the voiceover was tried. Um, but I think, I don't know if you watched it with me, but I watched this film called Sherman's March. Oh yeah. Ross McElwee. Yeah. I just fell in love with it. And it also was just like also a single person crew who was just running around and you really experience him as a camera person, as a character. And so it's like, well, I have tons of that, those moments. So that's what we dug into. So I wanted to get into that, I guess. Did you then, um, once you decided that you were going to be a character in this film, that we were going to see you and we were going to hear you, how much of that did you plan out ahead of time and, and had a strategy for it and how much of it was kind of in the moment uh, and in the editing room deciding how much you were then going to put in had, had you made any ground rules for yourself I guess because I think about the scene in particular where it's pretty late in the film I think it's in Colorado with Zach where he says he looks at it just really exhausted at that point and he kind of says to you you know am I supposed to talk to you as you or it's, there's kind of that moment where he's like how should I acknowledge you? And um, that's one of those things documentarians have to navigate all the time. So how much of that was something you, you had laid that groundwork for and how much of it did you just roll with? Yeah, when I was filming, when that moment happened, I hadn't just, you know, fully decided to be in the film yet. It was just one of those things that I had to answer in the moment. Um, and in reality, I feel like every project I've worked on, nonfiction project I've worked on, has had those moments. It's just the moments that are usually cut out. But I think we had a reason to put it in here because, you know, Josh and I talked about this, but thematically it's about, you know, for Zach's character especially, you know, trust and, you know, how how much you trust him as a character at that point. Um, And also, you know, how much the filmmaking affects the story. So. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, my moment, and it probably is the same for a lot of people in terms of power, is the the montage of the that, that kind of reveal when you're cross-cutting between the different storylines converging. Um, and we, we get a little music with it, and, and the, the pace of the cutting is a little quicker. You're, you're clearly trying to make those connections evident um, when each character is having that that uh, epiphany, I think, uh, on some level. And so I want to go to you, Josh. Um, when you're looking at that footage, how did you how did you come across that that montage? Did you know it was something? Um, did it happen in the editing room, or um, did you guys know even before you got there, the, based on the footage, that you had that moment? No, no yeah. Initially, we had had them all separated. Um, all of those uh, sort of moments were were separate, and we had had a screening early on. Um, at Concordia, which is where we were sort of editing from. And um, Davis Guggenheim, one of his notes was something like, be great if you could have all those planes land at once. And, uh, and we were like, oh, all right. And we 
like went back and it, like for some reason it just like came together really quickly, mm. like, like really fast. And we watched it the first time and we're like, this is great. And then we spent months and months tweaking it and making it better and changing out things and losing. Like that was the hardest thing to cut. And we definitely had a hard time landing on exactly what it was and what we were trying to link together. But but the idea itself came together pretty quickly because it was just a, it's like, of course, you yeah. have all this happen at once, you know. What was the hardest part about making all those threads converge from your perspective, Bing? Um, I mean, I remember you just saying, like, what if we try a crosscut montage? Like, you called me and you were like, you, like, got high and, like, we're watching a TV show <laughs> that did it. And you're like, Bloodline. yeah, Bloodline, Bloodline yeah, yeah I, which I've never seen. But I was like, all right, let me, let me try, you know. And we were, like, editing from an Airbnb in Venice. And um, so I just tried it that night and I showed him in the morning and I was like, oh, yeah, this is, I think this is going to work. And so, you know, we're off from there. Um, but yeah, I, I think the hardest part is actually just trying to get the score <laughs> well, I mean, we found this temp track that really worked really well, but you know, so much of the rest of the score is very like ethereal. And I mean, it's Nathan Halpern who does a lot of this more droney style stuff, and it's sort of hard to get him on board with, you know, how how you know emotionally loud this cue was. Yeah, yeah. Well, we we do have some time for some questions from the audience. Is there going to be a microphone in the crowd, or are we just going to stand up and and shout it out? I was just wondering. Towards the end of the movie, it's so deep and so intense. And I thought, was there a decision to just cut it off right then and there before you do the that uplifting portion at the end? I mean, I just feel like it just goes back to the roots of how it all started, which is this reconstituted reality, which is what skate montages were for me as a teenager. You know, I think that's partly why I fell in love with making skate videos, because you're able to just capture all these moments and, you know, make it seem like a really good time. And, you know, that might be blindly optimistic, but it's, it's true and it makes, helps a lot of kids survive. Um, I think the, the thing that we, we struggled with more was just what song to use. I mean, at one point we were trying to license Old Man, but we just couldn't, it was just like too hard. Like Neil Young, we couldn't, you know. We looked for Neil Young's daughters. It just reached out to all these people. But... And then I was also like, is this song too happy? Even though it's like literally about child abuse from a stepfather. Um, I remember someone at Cartempkin was like, just give, just give them this one thing. Like it's so it's so heavy for all of it. Just give them, you know, a little bit of hope. So. I was very affected by your film in so many different ways. But was that the first time you'd ever asked your mother about that in front of the camera? In front of the camera, yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, I think what what happens in with children who go through traumatic experiences is they develop these pretty useful coping mechanisms. Um, and for me, it was just forgetting and blocking things out. Um, so all the conversations I would have with my mom, you know, they get really upsetting really quickly, and you know, I would just go into coping mechanism mode. Um, and I would just not even remember what we talked about. So that I didn't get a chance to process. I felt like there was this black hole in my in my past. Um, so kind of what was exciting about documenting it so much um, and knowing that we we're going to go longer than usual was that, oh, we're going to have a transcript of this and, you know, I'm going to be able to, you know, fight my own coping mechanism, like overcome my own, the thing that has helped me when I was a child through what I want as an adult. So I think that was... And it was hard. I don't think I was able to watch the raw footage. I just looked at transcripts. Josh was able to watch the raw footage. Was the artifice of that situation, the fact that you were within this construct of making a movie, did that 
allow you to have enough, just enough distance to actually do that thing that you had never done before? Yes, absolutely. I saw myself as a character. I, you know, the whole time I was thinking, I just kept thinking like, All right, what do I need for the scene? Hold on, let me set up this even wider shot to get like this whole thing. And, um, but I mean, one note that I'd gotten at a Cartemquin screening was, you know, we want this, when I first was trying to put myself in the film, it's like, we want the same vulnerability that Kier and Zach are giving, you know, that's what's going to make us care. And, but how do you do that? You know, how do you like look in a mirror and like be vulnerable to yourself? And so that's what that second camera was for, um, to create some sort of scenario where I didn't have control mm -hmm. to be mine later. So how much control did you give up? Did, did you have conversations with that that shooter did you um did you give them any instructions about what to do or what not to do or did you let them sort of sort of get what they felt like they needed i showed them a rough cut and i was just like you know from the moment i get in the car don't stop rolling um and that was kind of it except during the interview he kept panning over to my mom in the middle of the interview i was like no you, you need to be on me phil yeah, yeah. yeah. you almost used that at one point because he's like, no, 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 point that at me. <laughs> I, was, I should also add, though, like, you know, there is an element of like the camera and it's a meta layer of the film. But the camera itself is a shield, sure. both for 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 the person who's asking the questions in that case, Bing, but also for the person who's answering them. And that was something we tried to allow in throughout the point where, where they're acknowledging we uh, there were varying degrees of this that we had cut back on, but that they are allowing pe themselves to be documented and allow and talking about it in part because it's therapy in a way right like they acknowledge it in the end Kier does and and you know it's just the nature of sort of being a documentarian yeah. is that you get those answers out of people um yeah i really love the film uh, a lot and i thought you know the themes and, and the messages are universal but uh i grew up in rockford and to me it feels very specific of like i know these people i know this place even got a shot of the symbol in there, which is very cool. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Rockford as a setting and as a place that kind of shapes shapes the the subjects. I wanted to be careful not to pin a lot of the issues that are brought up in the film on a place um, because I feel like that would have been an easy way out. But I also wanted to honor the truth of the reality of you know the socioeconomic status that Rockford is. Um, I think the first time I went, uh, I mean, really it was, you know, through feedback screenings with Gordon Quinn at Cartemquin when he was like, you know, this is, it's really important to show that Rockford is a unique place. But also people in feedback screenings were like, why, why, where are the cars? Like, why are there no cars around? And so I had to explain to them, well, no, it's, it's a Rust Belt city, you know, the 80s economy did this whole thing to it. Um, but when I first went out to shoot, it, it was like I was going for architectural beauty, and it just felt emotionally flat. And then the next thing I tried was just these empty skate spots. I think that worked pretty well. And I just kept noticing all these billboards, which you're only seeing a fraction of them. There's so many of these billboards around that, um, you know, these like PSAs. Um, when I was filming those, there was a part of me that was like, this is so cheesy and like not, like it's not going to. But I think a little went a long way. And then finally, once it was pretty clearly about domestic violence, that's when I went and shot those big, gorgeous houses, you know, because it says something about Rockford, but also says something about what happens in, in homes. So I don't know if that was your question or not. <laughs> <laughs> Diane and I were talking just before about, was it just last weekend the movie premiered in Rockford? I I'd love to hear following that question what that was like for all of you to see a film with a crowd in that town. 
That was crazy because every, I mean, we had everyone at Sundance besides Nina because of childcare issues, but this time Nina was also able to be there. I mean, Nina's come to other screenings, but, you know, so it was cool to have everyone. I mean, I would have to say I was nervous about showing it at Rockford because it's one thing for the characters to show it at Sundance where no one knows them really, but to show it in their hometown. And for some of them, like Kira's mom, it was the first time for her to see it. But um, I don't know. It was so emotional. And and I think they, the audience and family and friends just embraced the film so much. It just meant a lot to all our characters. And I think it meant a lot to you too, Bing, to be there. I mean, it was, it was one of the first times where it no longer felt like a dream. Mm-hmm. It just really hit home in a literal way. I mean, like my neighbor was there and she was like, you know, I saw your mom like pulling weeds and crying and I just never knew what was going on at home. You know, just like this really like, you know, um, also the mayor and the ex-mayor was there. I mean, it was, it was kind of crazy. And yeah. And the mayor, I mean, the neat thing is that they all appreciated this because when initially the mayor says, I can't wait to see it. I'm going, I hope (laughs) he doesn't know what this movie is about. Um, but they appreciate it so much, and um, I think they're going to use this film in many ways as a springboard to um, address some of the issues, definitely. We got time for one more here, maybe? Um, I wanted to go back to what you said about uh, the billboards. I really liked that element of the film. I thought it was a good way to, at least to me, it seemed like it was illustrating sort of like the national or maybe like a, a broader dialogue like people were definitely like recognizing you know the issue of domestic violence and the the sound bites that you had of uh you know the the uh, reporters kind of commenting on statistics and stuff like that and then contrasted that with you know the people that you're profiling um i guess i'm just wondering what was one thing that you saw that as being a primary impediment to breaking that cycle of abuse or getting, you know, the help that, you know, everybody in this film, you know, so desperately needed. I mean, it's so systematic and cyclical. I mean, we just don't have a place to talk about it. Um, we don't have a language to talk about it. We don't have, we can't overcome the shame of talking about it. It's just like self-policing thing that happens. Um, I think one reason why I also, you know, was trying to find a way to fit myself in the film and show you the filmmaking process is to show you, you know, um, this is the only way that I could bring out this issue in the film on the, with with these two people uh, because there was these two forces at work. You know, we do want to end the cycle of violence, but we also, as a society, you know, have this deep respect for privacy, and that sense of privacy is you know inherent both in documentary filmmaking, but also you know with families and what happens behind closed doors. Um, so I think we're going to have to get really uncomfortable and um, work through that shame and work through this value of privacy to hold people accountable, to, you know, talk about our experiences, to normalize it, to build a common language around it. Um, And I hope this film as a whole does that, you know, just sort of gives you a little bit of a guidebook and shows you, look, this is how you do it. And it is difficult, but this is how you do it, and this is why it's important. It gives hope was the comment and i'm assuming you that was that was one of the goals certainly with this film right yeah 
after making a film like this that's obviously so personal that you are uh, one of the subjects within the movie? Do you do you feel like that's what you want to continue to do? Do you can do you still have those personal stories to tell, or are you content to to go a completely different direction and and not be one of those people in front of the camera? Well, the current project that Josh and I are working on is not. I'm not going to be in the film. You know, maybe I'll have a question from the camera, but. I mean, I believe that stories really work really well when you have a really personal connection to them. So, you know, I think I'm going to keep honoring that and remember the power in that. On that note, we will go off into the night and thank you to my guests. Thank you all for coming. My thanks to Tim Horsberg and Kartemquin Films for hosting that conversation and inviting me to be a part of it. I actually have some video as well of that Q&A. The whole thing was captured by Kartemquin's camera, so we might share a few of those clips. In addition to the interview, we'll let you know, certainly, if that happens. Bing Lu's Minding the Gap is currently streaming on Hulu. If you get a chance to see it, we certainly encourage you to do so. What other films are in contention for our Golden Brick Award? We'll share our short list next and also revisit our review of one of those titles, The Rider. Stay with us. Your work changes things, it gives me purpose. But I'm still very much afraid. Do what I do be good enough for this life? To let you see that I belong. You said this is one of your favorite buildings. It is. Why? It's one of the first modernist banks in the United States. No, no, that can't be it. Do you like this building intellectually because of all the facts? No. I'm also moved by it. Yes. Yes, tell me about that. What moves you? It's our Golden Brick preview special, and you just heard a clip from the 2017 winner of the Film Spotting Golden Brick Award, Koganata's Columbus, with John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. We've been giving out the Golden Brick since 2009 to our favorite overlooked or underseen movie of the year. It has evolved a little bit over the years, but at least since 2014, it really has been focused on new or emerging filmmakers. So not just maybe overlooked films, but overlooked films that also happen to be the first film from a director, or maybe it's not the debut film, but it's by a director that is new to us. Yeah, we have some criteria, too, to kind of nail this down for The Golden Brick. It is a film that's been reviewed or recommended by at least one of us here, Adam or myself. Also, you know, it can't be a mainstream or highly publicized movie that probably speaks for itself. As Adam was saying, made by a new or newly established filmmaker, and this is an important element, too. It should show a clear directorial vision or some artistic ambition, doing something distinct on the screen that really does set it apart from the other films out in the given year. And we say not a mainstream or highly publicized movie. That's all a little bit subjective and arbitrary. We don't have a set number on how much it has to make or not make at the box office or how many screens it plays on. But even if you have what is a relatively Small film, it's not a big Marvel movie, for example, but if it plays on 1,200 screens, 800 screens, probably not going to be eligible for the Golden Brick. Maybe something like Sorry to Bother You 
this yeah. year. It definitely has that distinct vision, uh, newish filmmaker. Yep. Meets but, all the other criteria. Yeah, but it, it thankfully got in a lot of theaters. Yeah, you can get a lot more about The Golden Brick, including all of the previous year's winners and finalists over at filmspotting.net slash bricks. So now is the time where we give you that short list, and it is the end of November. We're getting close to the point where we have to name our top 10 films of the year. The end of the year is truly coming soon, but that doesn't mean there won't be a couple Golden Brick candidates that might sneak into the mix. This is where it stands right now. We start with three films that are, let's say, on the outside looking in, though one of them I very much plan to see over the next couple weeks, and that might affect its status in this competition. These are three movies, Josh, that you have seen that I have not. First one is Chosen Custody of the Eyes, another documentary here, written and directed by Abby Reese. It's a first-person doc made by a cloistered nun. She's doing all the camera work here, and she lives with a strict religious order that's also, interestingly enough, in Rockford. Yeah. So how about that? Chosen Custody of the Eyes is available for DVD purchase right now. Yeah, but that is the only way you can see it. That's the one of these three that I'm definitely going to watch. But unfortunately, the hardest one maybe to see right now for most film spotting listeners. The next film is Night Comes On. This is co-written and directed by Jordana Spiro. This is about a girl who is recently released from juvenile detention, and she embarks on a journey with her 10-year-old sister. Night Comes On is available to rent via streaming and on DVD right now. Our third film in this group is Thoroughbreds. This came out, I believe, fairly early in the year, written and directed by Corey Finley. It's about two upper-class teen girls who rekindle their friendship after years of growing apart. Also, you know, for added fun, one of them is a sociopath. Hmm. So Thoroughbreds, available to rent, streaming and DVD as well. The next set of films, we have two of them here, are in the category of movies that we both have seen, one we both recommended more than the other, but definitely could see sneaking into the list of finalists. The one we actually liked, I think, a little bit more, John McEnroe in The Realm of Perfection, directed by Julian Ferro. It's a philosophical inquiry into tennis performance filmmaking. And yes, John McEnroe, the DVD and streaming release in Vogue is still TBD, unfortunately. And we should probably say it's a lot more playful than that sounds. Yeah. Is that fair? Well, it's a lot more playful, and it's certainly not in any way a straightforward sports documentary, no. which is what I thought I was putting in. And I was perfectly content to watch a documentary that just told me about the greatness and the history and legacy of John McEnroe, but it is so much more than that. The other one in this category is Madeline's Madeline, written and directed by Josephine Decker. We reviewed it on episode 695 back in August. It's about a teen girl struggling with mental illness while working with an experimental theater troupe. That's also available to rent and stream right now. Madeline's Madeline, a favorite of many of our colleagues and can absolutely understand why we were a little bit more mixed on it. Well, and that's one that I can see jumping into being a front runner because we should also say the Golden Brick is decided you know, by the larger film spotting family. We invite the next picture show folks and Michael Phillips from the Tribune as well, all to have a vote. So yeah, these things will be more in play as uh, more of those people get a chance to see the titles. We do give that community typically five finalists to vote on. And not that it's been a down year for Brick contenders. In fact, I think these two films that we're about to bring up here are incredibly strong films. But as it sits... I would be okay with just these two movies being the final 
contenders for the 2018 Golden Brick. And that might be how it ends up. Yeah, though, I mean, we were we were on the low end for Madeline's Madeline. So I could see a bunch of those other folks who are really passionate about it. Mm -hmm. um, if that were an option, it might bump it towards the top. Absolutely. We will sort out all of these details in the coming weeks. But why don't we name the two front runners right now? They are Minding the Gap from Bing Liu, and then also The Rider, written and directed by Chloe Zhao. It's about a rodeo rider that suffers a near-fatal head injury, which does threaten his entire way of life. We saw this, I feel like this was earlier in the year as well, or maybe early summer. Yeah, back in Adam. May, yeah. I believe, we talked about The Rider. And Josh, we don't have to reveal it right now. I can't reveal it right now because I don't know which one I would pick between the two. I'm such a fan of both The Rider and Minding the Gap. That might be my most agonizing part of this whole top 10 process and picking some of these awards. I love both movies. Yeah, I've been going back and forth myself, so it'll be really interesting to see how it shakes out. Well, why don't we refresh our memories on what we loved about the writer? This is our review from May. No more writing, no more rodeos. If you don't stop, your seizures are going to get worse. I'd sell Gus, Brady. I can't sell Gus. It's not like you can ride anymore. You seen Lane? Remember when he went three for three in McCool Junction and won it? Yeah, that was a good night for Lane. There you go. Sometimes dreams aren't meant to be. So I think the backstory here is, you know, almost as fascinating in a lot of ways. Uh, the director, writer-director, Chloe Zhao, she attended college in the U.S. but was born and raised in Beijing. So while here in the States, she becomes fascinated by South Dakota and the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in particular. I actually saw her debut feature, Songs My Brothers Taught Me, at Sundance a few years ago, and it had some really striking imagery. Uh, it was it followed a brother and sister on this Pine Ridge Reservation and kind of uh, played out a little bit like a Malick film with its imagery, um, but here she has a much stronger thematic focus in the rider mm -hmm. set amidst the same community, essentially, and like Songs My Brothers Taught Me, entirely, almost entirely a non-professional cast. So in this case, Brady Blackburn, played by Brady Jandro, is sharing his own story. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who really was injured, almost killed when he fell off a horse during a rodeo. Which neither of us knew going into the film. I'm had trying to remember if I Because I had no clue. I, you know, I really don't remember for sure. I, having seen songs my brothers taught me, I knew this is how she worked. Okay. So, but I don't know that it was a one-to-one -one thing where Jandro was, yes, non-professional, but also telling his exact story. Mm -hmm. I don't think I knew that. Okay. Um, and I don't think you would because he's very good. No, you wouldn't. He's uh, it's really good. It's minimalist. Yes. Right. It's yes. not trying to do too much. For um, me, it's up there with Phoenix as my favorite I think male performance of I the year. I think they're very comparable. Yeah. They're similar in approach and style and equally effective. And the question here really is, you know, the trauma he's facing is, yes, physical. And the, and the movie is true to that. Um, but also it's this identity crisis. That's what I mean, it is. What, yeah. what, are, what is he going to do? 
in this macho subculture when, you know, his writing is all he's known and there's no other purpose you get a sense if you can't do that, at least to be respected and admired in the way that he was getting used to as a as a burgeoning rodeo mm-hmm. star. So this movie, I think for better and for worse, uses its non-professional actors. Jandro's uh, father and sister. Yes. His sister has Asperger's syndrome. They play his father and sister. And I will say, especially having seen a number of uh, Sean Baker films now who also likes to work with a mix of novices and established actors, I don't think Zhao quite has the same facility with them as Baker. As good as Jandro is, I think some of the supporting performances, you can feel that – I don't know if it's even inexperience or you can just feel the documentary elements more in their scenes perhaps. Um, I don't think it's a huge detriment. I I just recognized it there. Um, But overall, this movie works for three, I would say, really amazing scenes I want us to get to and spend a little time on. But go ahead with uh, what you thought initially first. Well, first, I do want to point out you mentioned masculinity, and that's another real connection between these two films because I think it's more blatant here in the writer, actually, and this type of life that these characters lead, what it means to be a cowboy in this world. But it's also part of You Were Never Really Here, not only in the male figure saving these women, but in some of those flashbacks, we get a sense of the father trying to trying to show him what a masculine ideal is. That element, the way reality and, and fiction are used, documentary and narrative are used in this film, really is fascinating. And as I said, I went in having no sense of that whatsoever, not expecting it at all. And the next picture show, our sister show, has released this week, actually, their new pairing. They always do a past movie and a present movie and talk about how they kind of converse with each other and how the new one may or may not be inspired or influenced by the other. The writer is undeniably this lyrical narrative feature and less experimental than something like Close Up, the other movie that they pair it with, the Kiristami film from the 90s, which was much more blatant in the way it blurred that line between reality and fiction. And yet the way Zhao does it for me is really subtly fascinating because I kind of went on this journey with the movie to realizing what she was doing. First, you see this performer. You see Brady Jandro playing Brady Blackburn. And he's an unknown face, he's an unknown name, and he's so natural, and as you said, minimal, yet so expressive on screen. And he's doing things physically on a horse and training a horse that I think most of us watching have to assume that's not something you can just act, you know, or a lot of research and a lot of painstaking work has to go into someone who doesn't already know how to do that inherently, instinctively, pulling that off. So I'm starting to kind of suspect that maybe he was someone who just really came from this life and really wasn't an actor. And at this point, I didn't even know his name was Brady in real life either. So that crossover wasn't there for me. And then you meet his father, Wayne, and his sister, as you said, Lily. And you think, well, they don't really seem like actors either. I've never seen them before. What Lily is doing, and her name is Lily in real life, being this person, not playing this person with a form of autism. And her father, I agree with you, Josh. I think Tim Jandro as Wayne here, the father, is the one who is not as immediately convincing as an actor. He doesn't seem as natural on screen. But not only do I think it doesn't really harm the movie, I think you could make the case it gives it a little bit more authenticity. It didn't pull me out of the film. Something about a character just saying something and there's a key line there's a key exchange between them late in the movie that we won't talk about obviously but something about that line i could 
just hear it in my head being delivered so many different ways by other really professionally trained actors. And maybe they would be more convincing. Maybe they would be better. Maybe they wouldn't be. But I think there's something about a character saying something that feels true to them and not saying it the way they've processed it, they've analyzed it, they've done sort of that beat analysis, and here's what I'm going to express. They're just saying it. And maybe it doesn't come out quite as eloquently or as naturally in some ways, actually, as another actor would do it, but it worked for me. So I'm seeing some of these elements to the performance, and I'm thinking, okay, she's at least using non-professional actors and people who really have lived these experiences that we're seeing portrayed on screen. And then it's taken to another level when we meet Lane Scott, yeah. who is in a home. At first, we hear about rehab, and we think, well, he probably has an addiction problem. At least that's what I thought. And then you realize it's not that type of rehab, that he is another rodeo rider who has suffered a debilitating injury. He is now paralyzed. And you're watching him, and you're seeing old footage, and you're realizing that this old footage is real old footage, and it's him. So this actor isn't acting like someone who's paralyzed now. That's him. He did suffer that injury. And at the end of the film, the first thing I did was Google that and sure enough, saw that that was true. The one stylistic nod that happens just before that visit actually is when he's out with his friends and they have a campfire and it's dark and they're sharing stories and they're talking about his injury. And then it just kind of goes into this roundtable of them sharing stories, these other three friends about their injuries rodeoing. And it is almost like a documentary where they're talking to an interviewer almost more than each other. They're answering the question, it seemed to me, that the filmmaker posed to them, what's the worst injury you've ever suffered? What's your best story where you got hurt? And that's the moment where they tell it. And so in that moment, it feels like a totally different type of film. But I love the confidence and the control as a filmmaker to interject a scene like that, along with the other ways that Zhao is integrating real people and events. But for me, it never upstaged or or undid this otherwise really poetic narrative. Yeah, what's remarkable about that campfire scene is that even as it has that documentary element of testimony, right. it's this jaw-droppingly gorgeous lyrical, they're atop a plateau as yep. the sun goes down and the campfire, and then they're where you know, they're cowboys. They're dressed so they have this mythical, heroic imagery going on here at the very time that their testimony is undercutting that a little bit mm-hmm. by by mentioning the costs of this lifestyle and also you get this sense that you know they they might be the only, some of the only ones of their kind left doing these sorts of things and and that's echoed by this uh the darkness that's surrounding them and they're this lone group atop this plateau the cinematography is by Joshua James Richards who also worked with Zhao on her previous films so that's really gorgeous that's one of the scenes i want to be sure we talked about you mentioned the other one with Lane Scott and mm-hmm. rehab what about the heartbreaking moment where they relive they, riding. They relive riding oh. by putting him, essentially trying to put him on a saddle. And Brady is encouraging him. And and here's where close up is a good touch point because this is where our knowledge that these real people are reenacting things they've done before 
knowing that watching this scene does add you can call it yeah. meta and call and I think it like you do know it even if you haven't googled it you know or it you're not aware of it you know because it. these you see these are two friends i mean these are either like the best actors we've ever seen right or these are guys who have done this mm. and then you're thinking about even as you're living that experience as fiction you're thinking about what does it mean for these two guys who have done this right to be recreating this again when it's one of these really complicated actions where you know Sure, there might be some encouragement in it because Lane professes that he's going to get back on a horse, right? Mm -hmm. Um, That's his stance. He's going to get out of that wheelchair and go back to the rodeo. So there's there's a form of – there's an element of inspiration to it, but also when you see the reality of what he's facing, Mm -hmm. there's – this, um, you know, just a, a sense of depression and all of that is wrapped up in their moment together, which, you know, is real. So and, and close up does that, too, where people are recreating things they've experienced yes. in some ways, maybe not as intensely as this, uh, depending on, you know, how you see the stakes in that film. So and the other one you referenced as well, for me, the moment where the movie did come together is that horse training sequence with Brady in the corral. He has made money before. Training horses. Mm -hmm. He has a knack for it. And, you know, his doctors have told him, you can't do the rodeo anymore. So maybe this is a way you can live. And Zhao just lets this again happen at sunset. And it's a series of long takes that she cuts, intercuts basically is probably an afternoon of training, but we see in one extended sequence mm-hmm. that's just beautiful to watch the way he's, he alternates gentle caresses with these firm commands. And this is a guy with a real gift yeah. showing it on the screen. It's, it's an instance of pure harmony. And yes. in a way, it's purer harmony than the scenes you've seen of him on a rodeo because there's there's something off about that. There, there's not only the danger, there's the um, you know the the horses, the anger of the horses clearly mm-hmm. being in distress. Here, it's this guy with this creature, and they're in harmony. It's where he needs to be. Yeah, and there and there's something beautiful about him getting that moment, even in the wake of his injury. Yes, of course. You know, there's that setting sun again, and you realize this is also something that the sun is going down on in America in general as a way of life. And so there's a dual melancholy here, Brady's particular situation, the lifestyle of this subculture mm-hmm. that Zhao is so fascinated with. And, and man, that's a stunner of a moment where that all comes together. And perhaps what's also going away, for better or worse, is this sense of manhood. Right. As well, this masculine identity. And that scene you mentioned is also one where we are supremely aware of the tragedy of his situation because we see how harmonious that moment is and how good he is at that job. And we know that while he might think maybe I can pull this off. We know it's not going to work. We know the reality of his situation. We know we know how this is going to play out. And actually, it goes back a little bit to what I was saying with you were never really here on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. We're watching at that moment a professional doing what he does best. It's him fulfilling his purpose, and it's definitely much more pleasant to watch. I have to bring up, though, I have to ask you because we talked about Lean on Pete yeah. a couple weeks ago, another very good horse movie this year. And the whole angle, the beginning of the discussion was about horses as metaphors. Yeah, there's – and there's there an unfortunate is, horse metaphor here, unfor- I would say. There's an unfortunate horse metaphor here. It's the one moment in the film where Zhao, as a, as a filmmaker, decides, I need to spell something out for yeah, the audience. Yeah, she doesn't and, trust her images. And I, I do want to give some credit, though, and suggest that 
at least there, it's not the way it is in some other movies where someone has to underline the theme for us, where they shoehorn it into another character saying it or expressing something. I think you could make a case that it's believable that Brady, that man, would have that realization. Oh, absolutely. That he, that he would see the metaphor and feel the need to express it. Though, as a viewer in the moment, I was watching it going, I think everyone seeing this film is is undeniably aware of exactly what he's thinking and exactly what he ultimately expresses. And then he does. Yeah, and see, right. See, I would counter that because it's out of character with the performance he's been giving, which is speaks only when he absolutely needs to. But he could have that and epiphany. He, oh, absolutely he could. Right. But like her imagery is so it, powerful yeah. that we are all having that epiphany based just on what she shows us. So there's just, you know, just a little lack of confidence in that imagery, which is so stunning. It does all the work it needs to do. I believe God gives each of us a purpose. The horse is trying across the prairie. Go For cowboys to ride. The Rider is available to rent on DVD or streaming on most platforms. More information, again, about all of our 2018 Golden Brick finalists is available at filmspotting.net. Slash bricks. If you do have a last minute contender you want to throw on, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Over at our website, filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Okay, I've got four things I'm going to list here, and I'm asking you just to do one of them. All right. Check out the next picture show. It's our sister program. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts or order a film spotting t-shirt. We've got all sorts of merch at filmspotting.net slash shop. Otherwise, maybe follow one of us on Facebook or Twitter. Hey, follow us both. Adam is at filmspotting. I'm at Larson on film. The last option you have here, you're really going to want to do this one. Sign up, subscribe to the weekly film spotting newsletter. You can do that at filmspotting.net slash episodes. Out in limited release here in Chicago this weekend, searching for Ingmar Bergman, a documentary I did recently make time for, and of course, being a big fan of Bergman's work, I found it at times illuminating. There are some directorial choices that we could certainly discuss in more detail. Josh, streaming out now, you can see The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. This is the latest from, oh, just the Cone Brothers, a film spotting favorite. It's on Netflix, and it's also playing in limited release, so it is opening in theaters here in Chicago, but... You can also watch it from the comfort of your own home if you so choose. Josh, I know you've already had the opportunity to see it. Can't wait. Two things. Can't wait to see it again because it's jam-packed and can't wait to talk about it. I'm kind of wrestling with this one. Okay. I'll just say that. Out in wide release, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. An instant family, a couple, finds themselves in over their heads when they adopt three children. Mark Wahlberg stars on that with Rose Byrne, Widows. Even though I was more enthusiastic about it than you, Josh, it sounds like we are both going to recommend, ultimately, the latest from Steve McQueen. Definitely. With Gillian Flynn starring Viola Davis and a great ensemble. That is out this weekend as well. Next week on the show... 
We're going to be taking a little Thanksgiving break. In two weeks, we'll be back. And our plan right now, I'm sure we're going to fit in a few movies and we may highlight those. But the main review will definitely be that latest from the Coen Brothers, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. I'm also pretty excited about Creed 2. I'm hoping we'll give a few minutes to that. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. I lied. I have a fifth thing to ask you. Give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. Our music this week is by Bakerman. It comes from the album Skeptics Observe. More information is at bakerman.bandcamp.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.